Okay, we are live here. Okay, so um, here is the, uh, let's give a quick introduction. Oh, we're running a couple of minutes late. So we're on chapter three in Tanya. We spoke, we spoke last time about the Adam family, meaning all the different parts that there is in our soul. There is the uh, 10 faculties, uh, the three intellects and the two emotions, which totally represents um, two different elements of our soul. Uh, and we spoke a lot about that. We spoke about the wisdom, understanding, knowledge, what happens with the emotions. Uh, today, I want to share with you, there's actually two things I want to share with you. And um, I'm just going to try to cram it in together because I really don't want to start ending up giving four, five, six uh, lectures on each chapter. You know, there's got to be a balance between how deep we go and how wide we go. So we want to get through the Tanya. But on the other hand, we also want to get a little deeper beneath the surface to understand what's really going on here because this is about the soul's journey. It's about our life. So we don't want to just turn it academic. So from that perspective, I want to share with you that what we said last week, straight out of Chapter 3 in Tanya, is that the intellects are considered the parents, the offspring is the emotions. That is what we said last week, correct? Whoa. <laughs> oh my God, I totally need to make a person when I go on live. <laughs> okay, sorry, but as it may. So, what we're trying to say here is that it seems to be so right. You think about things and that creates feelings. We spoke about if you don't, uh, you don't think about God, you're not going to have feelings for God. You don't know about God, you're not going to have feelings for God. Neither love nor fear. So really, it all begins up here. And that's why this week you saw one of the epiphany notes was what? The epiphany moments was that much of what we call feelings are actually thoughts. And how do you get from the thoughts, the intellect, into the heart? Okay? But nevertheless, that's what it says in Tanya, that there are the three intellects. And when you have the wisdom, the understanding consummated by the knowledge as explained in Tanya, not what we call knowledge, accumula accumulation of data, then you're going to have offspring, primarily love, fear, compassion, and all the rest of the human emotions are offsprings of that, according to Tanya, according to the teachers of Kabbalah. So. Here is the big question, and this isn't my question, but I'm going to share with you the first part is a huge series of discourses, difficult discourses of the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe. So we're going to just make it simple and short. How can one say that the intellect evolves, gives birth into emotions? If everything about intellect and emotions are exact opposites. Let's talk about the first obvious thing. The mind means calmness. Emotions is all about raging, passion. The mind generally wants to work in solitude. Emotions demands who to share, who to have with. Love, fear, there's always an other involved. 
The mind cannot tolerate chaos. The emotions very often walk hand in hand with chaos. So the question here is, how exactly can we say that the calm, cold, calculating solitude of intellects is going to give birth to a baby of chaos and, and passion and, and loudness. It's the exact opposite. On top of that, I want to introduce you to a Kabbalistic concept mentioned over and over and over in Hasidus. Between your head and your body is what? Your neck. Your neck is known as Meitzar Hagoyrin. It's one of the tightest places in your body. Gorin is the throat, and Meitzar is the narrowness. Now, I wanted to share with you quickly a mystical concept. I'm not going to get into it right now. It's not important for our chapter. It's just important that you know of them. If you read the stories of Pharaoh, you'll come across with Joseph, you'll have, and, and uh, the, the dream, you'll soon see there's three ministers, Sare Paroi, the ministers of Pharaoh that we're introduced to in the Torah. Number one, there is the Sar, the Sar HaTabachim. Potiphar was actually in charge of the meats. The next two that you meet is when Joseph is in prison, one is the minister of the cakes, and one is the minister of the wines, right? In Kabbalah, we refer to these three ministers as the three vital parts of your neck. Within your neck, you have the food pipe, the wind pipe, and the major arteries, right? Those three are ministers, which according to Kabbalah, get in the way between the intellect and the emotion. And we talk about this in different levels. Again, one represents the passion of food. One is the uh, vanity and arrogance of ear. The other one is the hot passion and, uh, of blood. Whatever it is, it's all, it's all explained. But I want to just point out again, it doesn't seem to be such a natural flow as we explained it last week based on what the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, in chapter 3, it doesn't seem to be so natural. It seems to be that there is a huge process and journey in trying to get the intellect broadness through the narrowness into the broadness. It seems to be that there's a huge, huge evolution, transformation, where something has to become the exact opposite of what it was. Okay? With that being said, again, this could be a very beautiful Kabbalistic class, but what we're really focusing on is how we live life. One of the greatest challenges we have is to have peace between our mind and our heart, to have a, a flow between our mind and our heart, and to have our emotions be specifically human emotions, which means that they're built upon guided and sustained by the mind not by uh, hormones and on the other note we want our mind our intellect to be human intellects and not computers so what we're talking about here is not a Kabbalistic journey it's a very practical practical journey of how to 
have feelings. A, for a higher power, love, fear, for a higher power, and from that to ourselves, and from that to others. Okay? And, and it has to work that way. Um, I believe it's the fourth about Sheba, maybe it's the fifth about Sheba. I'm not sure where I saw it in quotes. Maybe the fifth about Sheba. He actually says, the person who does not love themselves cannot even love the most natural genetic loves, which is your own children, your spouse. Right? It's got to be here first. And, and then, of course, it's very clear that if we don't have a relationship with our higher power, we're not going to have a sustainable love for ourselves. Because the unconditional love cannot be born within us. It comes from, hopefully at some point, we had it with our primary caretakers, our parents, and then we understood that even greater than that, we have it with our God. And yes, there's a billions of dollar industry of those of us who didn't get it, how we have to re-self-parent ourselves, so forth and so on. Okay, with that being said, so what I want to introduce to you right now is two different levels of intellects and emotions. One of them, it flows easily from mind to heart, from intellect to feelings. And the other one, it's not so easy and you've got to make it through the dark forest of the neck. Okay? In Kabbalah and Hasidis, this is referred to as godless hamoichin. Godless means the greatness, the big, and katless hamoichin, the small, katan. So too we have godless hamidas, the big emotions, and then there is katless hamidas. Now, what we're going to discuss over here is, remember the words, gadol, gadlut means big, Katnut, katan means small. Okay? Mochen is intellects. Midot is emotions, feelings. With this being said, normally, before I did deeper research for this class, one of the simple ways we explain it when we're just starting to, to, to learn, we say, well, the difference is an adult or a child. The adult has gadlus and he can think out of the box beyond his reptilian and limbic brains while the child can't. And you can see very much a difference between the intellect of the adult and the child by seeing the difference in the emotions of the adult and the child. That's how one would simply explain it, but that is actually incorrect. The difference between the godless samoichin and the katlus samoichin, the big intellects or the small intellects, actually isn't just the difference between a child and, a, and an adult. Okay? Nevertheless, it is said in Hasidus, you will very often find a metaphor of the teacher and the student in trying to understand the relationship between the infinite light and the finite creations. However, in Kabbalah, it definitely explains, and a little bit falling back on yesterday's class, which wasn't Tanya, but the Mimer, I shared that the difference between the world of Atzilut, in which divinity is taken as practical, tangible, and physical is taken as an abstract thought, 
what do those Jews do down there when they learn about an ox goring a, a, another ox, uh, a cow? Uh, what are they talking about? We know what it means up here. An ox, if you read the book of Ezekiel, you'll see that the first great, the first great prophecy is of the chariot. And it says clearly that on the throne of God, there is the face of an ox. And that's the left side, which represents strength and strictness. That's how they're learning it. The last thing they're hearing is, mm, that, that's not what they're doing up there. It's a total different paradigm. But then knowing that the Torah was given down here, they try to figure out what, what, are, what are Jews, what are the physical ones down there? What are they talking about? And then when they start getting an understanding of what happens in the evolution from the infinite to the finite, from the spiritual to the physical, they have an abstract concept of what the physical cow must look like. While we in the world of Biyah, we that is in after that, you remember we spoke about that famous verse in, in, in Genesis, Eden, and from there flowed out the river that broke into four heads of water. So we that are outside, we have the exact opposite. Our concept is that we know what a cow looks like. We don't know what Ezekiel was talking about. The face of a cow. There's prettier things to put on God's throne than, than the face of a cow. The face of an ox, right? I'm going to give you one more example of this. There are two prophets, Moses, and then later on there's another prophet. And they both begin to rebuke the Jewish people. And what does Moses say? Hazinu hashamayim Hear. Heaven, listen, earth. What does that mean? Hear means I'm right next to you. I'm talking into your ear. Listen means from a distance. Moses was a soul of Atzilut. He was close to heaven and far from earth. And thus, as long as his job was to teach Torah and divinity, he was fine. When they started asking him, we want meat, he turns to God and says, from where am I supposed to get meat? What do you mean from where you're supposed to get meat? Where'd you get everything else from? Have you forgotten who your supplier is? But he meant that, that I'm distant from that. What are they talking about? The other prophet, he says the opposite. Even though he was a prophet, but he wasn't Moses. So now we understand what it means, the difference in spiritual worlds what is called Gatlus HaMoychen and what is called Katlus HaMoychen. In, in the Kabbalistic evolution of the worlds. But, but I'm just sharing that with you so that we can understand what I'm really going to tell you right now. Intellect. Pure intellect. Has to be not just objective that I don't have ulterior emotional reasons to go one way or another way, right? That's, that's just pure, that's just not intellect. If, if my intellect <laughs> is that I, I know what I want the outcome to be because of ulterior motives before I sit down to, to judge, then, then that's, there is no intellect there. The intellect is being held in, in, a, in a headlock by the ulterior motives. And that's why the verse says, it doesn't say don't take bribery because bribery is, is corrupt. It says, don't take bribery 
because bribery makes blind the eyes of the wise. It literally doesn't allow the wise to have big intellect, not even small intellect, because any form of intellect is searching for the truth. So if we're talking about ulterior motives, we're not even talking about small intellects. Get that out of the picture. That didn't mean to enter into the arena, the arena of intellect. That's just pure corruption. So what is the difference between the objective and the subjective here? I'm not talking about the ulterior motives subjectiveness. I'm talking about am I capable of leaving go of my paradigm, my intellectual capacity. Again, let's talk about what happened yesterday, what we spoke about in the other class, about Hillel and Shammai. Hillel, his perception was that of kindness because his soul came from the first branch of the menorah. Shammai's perception was that of strictness. So now let's sit here by the table. We're sitting here. I'm the one that happens to be talking. More than one person is listening. You do realize that no one will walk out of this room with the same class. Why? You're hearing the same words I'm saying. And I'm saying the words from that which I learned. Were you to sit down and learn with me, they would learn it with me directly from the source. We would have four different lectures going on here at least. Why? Because smallness of intellect means I can only see it the way I see it. So much so that I heard, I didn't hear this from the Rebbe, but I heard this from someone that the Rebbe once said to him in a private audience, what is the definition of a wise one? Someone who can have two antithetical thoughts at the same time. If I can only hear that I'm right because my paradigm, my capacity, I'm not being arrogant with you. I truly don't, Hillel and Shammai, Shammai truly doesn't understand, so to speak, how Hillel could have allowed that to happen. How can you say that that was a kosher divorce? Nevertheless, Shammai was no small intellect. He was a big intellect, which is why he allowed his students to marry into Hillel's students. Even though if I argue with you if this is a kosher divorce or not, that means according to me this wasn't a kosher divorce. According to you, it is a kosher divorce. You did that with your student. So according to me, she's not a divorced woman. She's a married woman. If I allow my student to marry that woman, he's now married to a married woman, which means that the offspring will be illegitimate bastard. But he was not a small mind, and he understood. I understand it this way. He understands it that way, and they're both right. Even if I can't understand or justify his opinion. So in other words, that is what happens when we're talking about katnus hamoichen. I'm not able, forget about stepping out of from here down, which is ulterior motives. Katnus hamoichen is not able to step out of here. If you can't step out of here, you can never have the pure light of the intellect penetrate you. You're seeing it through your eyes. If you're seeing it through you, uh, your eyes, it's about you and your eyes, not about what you're seeing. Simply speaking, if you're going to wear dark glasses, you're going to see 
shit darkness. If you're going to wear red sunglasses, no matter what you look at. By the way, there's an interesting law because of that. You know, okay, I just put it out there quickly. You know that when a woman stains, it becomes a whole question if she's impure with the nidis that considered blood from the period. So you have to know if it's blood or not. So the law is that the rabbi has to check it in sunlight. Because if you look up here, this is fluorescent. It's white. The minute you're, you're coming to the issue with something from the outside, you're imposing something. What you're seeing is not what you're being shown. What you're being shown is pure. What you're seeing is your definition being imposed upon that. That is called smallness, okay? I'm going to give you an example of this, not in intellect, but in emotions. The verse in Tehillim says, God told Abraham, please, please pass this 10th test. And the verse goes on to say, why? So that I can prove your truthfulness. So Hasidus wants to know, really? The first nine tests were like, oh, whatever, anyone could do that. You know, one of those tests was to get thrown into the fire by Nimrod if he didn't agree to bow. And we can go on and on and on with these tests. So this is the test. And if you fail this test, you don't get a, if you fail this one, you don't get a 90. It's zero. Why? Hasidus explains that the first nine tests was a question whether Abraham can take his, his disposition of love beyond his comfort zone. But it's still about love. I feel comfortable loving you, God, so much. But am I comfortable to take it beyond that? Am I comfortable to take it beyond that? That was the first nine tests. What was the tenth test? The tenth test was the absolute antithesis of everything Avram stood for and everything he told people about God. One of the biggest things that Abraham had to fight with his generation was no God can ask for human sacrifice. One of the cruelest things that any person can ever do is ask a parent to kill their child. Thus you understand that Avram Avinu, in order to take this test, God was telling him, this will prove if you're true. Why? Because the first nine all fit into your paradigm from a quality perspective. The question was quantity. So yep, you can go beyond your human capacity as long as it fits into your human genetic programming. Now I'm going to ask you, can you completely step out of everything you think about me? Can you imagine? Where's Abraham going? Oh, he's going to slaughter his child. Abraham's going to slaughter his child? The one who told us that it's so horrible, human sacrifice? Now he's talking about his own child? So Abraham intellectually, emotionally, faith had to let go of every image he had of who God is and what God wants. That demands godless. That demands that I can get out of self. If you cannot get out of self, self is small. No matter how big self is, whether you're talking about an Einstein or a Ruggedchover, any type of human mind you're talking about, it's small. What's the definition of small and big? Finite and infinite. Now you'll understand why the souls are greater than the angels. A lot of people, I hear them telling their children, 
Nebuch went home, passes away. We should never know from it. What did he say? Oh, grandma became an angel. And I say, no, she didn't. That would be a downgrade. Why are souls greater than angels? How many angels did God have to send to Abraham? Three angels. Why three angels? Because the angel of Michael can only do kindness. So he had to bless with a child. The angel of Raphael can only heal. He had to heal Abraham from his surgery and save Lot's life. And Gabriel, strictness, he was there to punish and turn over Sodom. Why couldn't God tell one angel to do all? Because they can't. Because they're stuck in smallness. They cannot be truly big. The power of the soul is that I can do the exact opposite. The kindest person can sometimes have to do a very strict behavior. And there you have the stories. We grew up as kids. Our father, one time in his life, he saw his kid throwing a rock at, at a cat and he smacked his uh, son. And then the son went and he heard his father bawling terribly in the room. So here was a man of kindness who had to do something strict. And he had to break himself. An angel could not do that. The angel could not do that. Because to step out of self is something that an angel can't do. Only a soul can do that. Thus, we now have a clear understanding of what greatness, the bigness of the intellect and the bigness of the, of the emotion. We now have an understanding of what the smallness of intellect and the smallness of emotion means. Now let's go back to why we're discussing this at all. Because when you're talking about the light, you're talking about truth. What is the definition of truth in Judaism? So I'm going to give you a direct quote. Emet matim mikol tzad upina. Truth has to fit in perfectly from all sides and all corners. If it doesn't fit from all sides and all corners, it's not true truth. If there's one little detail that doesn't fit, it's not true truth. When you talk about the light, the light of truth is the truth of your mind and the truth of your heart. Not only is it the truth of your mind and the truth of your heart, it's the truth of your garments, thought, speech, and action. Thus, that which is truly true will flow through you without any blockage. I want to just give you a, a physical example. When you find your calling, your own calling, it flows from A to Z. When you're very clear and connected to your calling, everything from the intellect, from the feelings, from the thought process, from the details, from the all-encompassing, it flows. When you're dealing with something that you have not yet found your calling, you're struggling. Some things are easier, some things are not that easy. It's not a congruent automatic beautiful flow so i want to just use that example as when you're talking about that which is truth not my perception of truth my perception of truth won't fit in all areas even though they're all branches of the menorah they're different branches it won't fit 
It makes sense to me intellectually. It doesn't make sense to me emotionally. It makes sense to me intellectually and emotionally, but it doesn't make sense to me action-wise. Beautiful example. Here and here, I've been to the gym every day. The rest of me hasn't. Okay? So you understand that it's very possible when it's not pure. I'm sorry. Computer's acting up. Let's go further. The definition of small is it doesn't flow. Doesn't mean that it won't happen. It doesn't mean that you can't get through the, you know, all, all the, the bad witches always have like a, a forest in front of them. It doesn't mean you won't get through this forest. You will be able to get through, but it won't be a flow. You're going to have to grab the intellect and say, this I truly believe. So I've got to pull that into the rest of me. I don't feel it yet. Fake it until you make it. Fake it until you make it is getting through your, your blockage here. But when you're connected to your most inner calling, when you're absolutely objective, not because you don't have ulterior motives, but I'm not forced to think the way I think. Let me hear it. Let me step out of myself. Let me ask myself, and how can you see this absolutely differently? Interesting exercise. You know, in art, one of the things they teach you to do is to trick your left side of your brain is to turn the paper upside down. Because if you're going to work with your right side of the brain, you'll never be able to make a real good table because the left side of your brain knows that all the legs are the same side, size. Only the right side of your brain knows that you have to make the back legs shorter to create a perception of depth. So you have to trick the left side. That paradigm gets in the way. Another trick they tell you is don't draw the positives, draw the negatives. In other words, don't draw the legs of the chair, draw the space in between the legs. And these are all tricks to get out of the katnut hamochen, out of the smallness of your mind, so that you can open yourself up to the objective truth, which doesn't have to play by your personal genetic paradigm. That's why we're going to revisit now for a moment this chapter. When we talk about intellects, give birth to emotions, if you want to experience it the, the easy way without having to shove it down, so you're either, it's funny, the easy way, you're either going to work hard in the beginning or you're going to work hard in the, at the end or middle. You're either going to work hard of, okay, I, I know how I think. Let me see it different. Connect to the light, not to the my way of putting it. Or you're going to work hard on the other way. I really appreciate what I've so thoroughly understood. I want to be emotionally connected with this so that it can really be real to me and become my way of living. Which leads me to the last piece of this. Not that last. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That's what a good attorney is. But you know that in Jewish law, you don't allow that. You can't. Why can't? Why can't? Right. But we don't expect that to be capable. And that's why the Kohen Gadol, when he goes into the Holy of Holies in Yom Kippur, he can't wear gold. 
because the first sin of the Jews was the golden calf. Don't allow the prosecutor to be the defense because really, maybe he can't. I want to share with you a more important law that's very important for what we're saying. There's a law. The witness cannot be a judge. Why? Because when he interpreted what he saw, he will not be able to change it and say, one second, maybe what I saw wasn't exactly what happened. And by the way, it's very true. What you see is not what really happened. But if you saw it, it's almost impossible to take yourself out. It's interesting, really interesting. I, I want to just put this in for a moment here. In my personal life, you know who I'm going to talk about. The Rebbe. The Rebbe was so different than every other Orthodox rabbi. Just putting it simple. The Orthodox rabbis, especially the ones that came from Europe to America and all of a sudden were facing reform and the conservative and, and new definitions, they couldn't, we're at war. We, we are at war. You desecrate everything I believe in. And the other one is telling, the, the reform is telling the Orthodox and you are trying to reverse all the progress that we have finally achieved. So there were such opposites that to have a true friendship that's not built on not accepting our differences. Let's put away our differences. Uh, you know what? Let's play golf, Rabbi. We're not going to talk about religion. We're not just not going to come to terms here. Oh, sure. No problem. Just make sure you don't bring your pork drink with you. you know that? Don't, just don't go there. If we go there, we can't get along. What's amazing is seeing now documentation of the Rebbe's interaction with so many different rabbis. One rabbi proudly says, I was the Rebbe's man in the reform movement. And the Rebbe wasn't sending him there from the inside, destroy that, that nasty machine. Well, yeah, we gotta be back with it. The Rebbe truly saw, and it's so hard because trust me, if some of my colleagues are gonna listen to this, well, what do you mean? The Rebbe saw any goodness in the reform movement? If you can't see that, then you can't see who the Rebbe was. You can't see who the Rebbe was. When people were talking to the Rebbe about what was going on in the 60s and the people who ran away from Europe pre-war, the people who ran away from Europe pre-war, most of them were not running away from a continent. They were running away from a culture. Comes along the previous Rebbe and he says, you should know that those people that came to America before we did are the reincarnation of the Joseph that came to Egypt to prepare it for Jacob. Are you kidding me? Joseph, the holy tzaddik, you're comparing? Yeah. When the Rebbe was talking to someone about all the Bob Dylan people, all that whole gang over there, and the Rebbe was talking to them about what do you think happened in Egypt? They were idol worshippers. They were in 49 levels, but they held on to their name, they held on to their clothing, they held on to the language. Really? Really? You want to tell me that if they were living there for over 100 years, serving idols and everything, they still dressed like, like what? With a strimal? For a hat? So the Rebbe defines, no, they had a specific marking that made them different. That's all it's talking about. 
Can you be different? Can you hold on to whatever makes you different? Not the religious aspect of it, but the identity aspect of it. If these people were idol worships in 49 levels of impurity, they weren't holding on to the religious aspect of it. So all of a sudden, they're ever saying, and what do you think is going on with these people? These people who are rebelling, what are they doing? They're holding on to an identity. We're not going to be part of the melting pot. We're not going to just follow like sheeps off a cliff. It's unbelievable. When you start reading the Rebbe's talks, you realize that the ultimate definition of being big-minded is to see the light. The light has to fit on all levels. From the holiest level in 770 yeshiva learning down to the someone who's at the, what was the name of the big, uh, big thing again? Oh, I can't believe it. No, 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 no. The, what was Woodstock. it? Woodstock. To the Woodstock. If it's true, if it's divinity, if it's a true divinity, you're going to have to hear it in Bob Dylan's song and you're going to have to hear it in the Yom Kippur sermon. And the greatness of a big mind is that doesn't listen to the outside, but to the inside, he sees that. And he can appreciate that, uh, what's the man that we have over there? No, the one that, that, that uh, hallelujah. Oh, I can't believe I just forgot his name. The singer. No, the one who created Hallelujah. Also one of Bob Dylan's friends. I can't believe it. I have his name hanging here. He said Kaddishim all year. When that guy sings a song, when he sings a song, Who by Fire? This is a man who went to play. He played around with Buddhism. He did all the stuff there. Cohen, I think, something, right? Yeah. So what I'm just trying to say is, he in his world, he is, he is connecting with, with Hashem. Of course, we want to see him in shul and not in some Buddha place. Of course, wonderful. But the big mind sees that Hashem's entire world plays an entire... I have five minutes left. So I want to just share another stuff. I can't believe I forgot his name. Cohen. Oh my God, this is embarrassing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who by fire? Um, even darker. Whatever. Okay. Thank, thank God that's not what my job as a rabbi depends upon. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, we said Kaddishim all year. We said Kaddishim all year, and his name's hanging there. We said Yisrael. I don't know why. Just before Yom Kippur, I, I was introduced to his song "Who by Fire," and I just felt the connection. I said, you know, "He's not going to go down without having any Kaddishim." So we said Yisrael. Anyway, let's go back to what we're talking about. I want to share with you a different thing, which is on the same note, a little different, but it will help you a lot to actually practice this. You can very much tell a person's paradigm by the words he uses. For example, the famous prayer says, Adonolam. There's another verse form, which doesn't say Adonolam, but says Rebon. There's absolutely no difference. Adon is a master, Ribbon is a master. So I want to share with you something. Think about this for a moment. When you think about something, what are you doing? Are you connecting with the intellect or you're actually wording it out in your head so you're really listening to words? Very seldom can a person get so lost in a story thoughts 
where he's not actually talking in his brain. Thoughts have letters. Intellect, even though it also has letters, but you don't see them because it's the intellect. We will experience that quicker in emotions than with intellect because we're quicker to not need words. But when you get lost in something, you're actually shedding the vessels, the cups, and seeing the light. That's the difference if you're connecting with the letters of intellect or with the light of intellect. This too is part of everything we're talking about today. You will notice that some of us, especially those of us who have to speak for a living, it gets to a point where we think as if we're delivering a lecture. That's terrible. That's terrible. You didn't connect with the light yet and you already transformed it into words. And how I'm going to express this? Well, if I don't have the moment where it's light without vessels, then I never really saw the light because I automatically stuffed the light into my paradigm of words. And the same with emotions. If you're having thoughts while you're in the throes of love or anything like that, if you're hearing words go through your head, it's very interesting. People in NDEs, what goes the last moment that goes through your, my whole life flashed before my eyes. Interesting. It's visuals, it's not words. NDEs, near-death experiences. You're having over there visuals, not words. It's your way of cracking away the words and seeing it completely differently. That too is a tool for understanding how to connect with great intellect rather than small intellect. When you actually say it differently, when you say it the way you normally wouldn't say it, you're forcing yourself to take the light out of these vessels put it into the new vessels, new vessels that you're not that comfortable with, thus you're seeing more of the light than you're seeing of the vessels. Of the vessels. When you can do these things, the light of intellect and the light of emotions and the light of actions and the light of everything is one and the same. The vessels are very different. When I said this is calm and this is loud, this is chaotic, this is, that's the vessels. The light makes no difference. The more we can try to shed the outer layers of my expression of this. No, 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 you're wrong. Let me tell you how to say this. Right there, you're going to have a problem. From intellect, from emotion, it's all different languages. But if you're talking about the light, then I can appreciate that you said exactly what I'm thinking in a whole different way. And thank you for doing that because I now really understand there's something deeper than what I thought I understood. That's when the flow from light, to, from intellect, to emotions, to thought, to speech, to action is, is flowing. It is 8 o'clock. Thank you. No. Thank you. Thank you.